Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. So, you're a philosopher? Yes, 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 yes. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Just a quick note about this episode. We actually recorded one long episode and decided that there was enough material to split it into two. So this episode will be part one of our Burning Bridges episode. You can see it at verybadwizards.com slash episode slash 15. And there you'll find all of the notes and links for the stuff we talk about today. And the next episode will be up as episode 16. Scott, things aren't as happy as they used to be down here at the unemployment office. Joblessness is no longer just for philosophy majors. Useful people are starting to feel the pinch. And today's episode, we're going to be settling some some petty grudges, some old beefs. We're going to be bitching, but at the same time making some profound complaints about our respective fields and uh, and each other's fields. So we're gonna we're gonna list the top three things we hate about our own fields. Top three things I hate about philosophy. Top three things. Dave hates about psychology, and also the thing we hate the most about each other. Well, about each other's fields. <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. Uh, now I need to change mine. <laughs> yeah, you got to cry. <laughs> what are you furiously scribbling about? Right? <laughs> uh, you, you should see my secret room with all the newspaper clippings of, of, about you. <laughs> I know. I don't know why. With, like, like little pieces of yarn connecting things randomly. I don't know where you found all those uh, nude newspaper clippings. <laughs> I think you just put right, my head on just naked bodies. Because <laughs> one of them's black. I know. Uh, we should, s- you know, speaking speaking of of you being racist, we, let, let's just quickly mention uh, that uh, we had a failed attempt at recording uh, a podcast about race, justice, slavery, reparations. But we're going to get N word. N word. Uh, we're going to redo it. It was just a technical glitch uh, that was very unfortunate. But maybe the second time around it'll be. Good. It was a. It was uh, a good so episode too. I feel. Terrible. It was really good. Ah, God yeah, damn it! It was with my. It was a good friend of mine, Damani McDole, who will join us again. Yes, definitely. Um, we're definitely doing it again. But let's not dwell on that for this episode. Yeah. Let's. Uh, so I, I. I wanted to bring something up, and and we talked about this uh, before we get into the nitty gritty. So one of one of the nice things about about the internets and the modern world wide web is that you can actually get analytics about how people arrived at your uh, at your web page. And so we use a, a service called Squarespace uh, that does this nice little job of of sort of summarizing the visitors who who have, who have visited your website. And they might consider um, sponsoring it, us. 
<laughs> they might consider sponsoring yeah. you. Sorry. As you might expect, when people, the, the few people we get visiting our actual website, uh, wh- when they do search, they tend to search for things like Very Bad Wizards podcast or Tamler Summers or Tamler Nude with a Black Body or whatever. Um, but when you look at the analytics, they land. It'll tell you what brought them to your page, and there's some just really funny ones that I thought that I thought I just I, I wanted to bring up. So so of course the top ones are very bad wizards, very bad wizards podcast. Um, uh, then you have ones that that maybe people were searching for some philosophical topic like moral truths and cultures, the meaning of morality, um, moral character, uh, <laughs> and so. But then then some of them just get kind of crazy. So. Why are wizards bad? I guess we have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, why are um, they bad? Very good yeah. question. Yeah. Uh, but here's one. How revenge your female. Yeah, I like that one. I don't know what that means. I, now, I assume, I right, it's from India. Uh, yeah. How to revenge your female. Now, yeah. is it like, yeah. are you taking revenge against you, your female? Yeah, maybe it's avenge, or is it revenge against your female? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not I think it sure. may be avenge your female. And then, is your female... <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> why would you want to avenge someone else's? Yeah. You know? How to revenge your friend's female. <laughs> okay, here's one that I don't... Poor person, I don't know what they were looking for. Morgan Freeman's moral. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of it. bad. I love that one. Sex very bad. Yeah. Somehow, which which maybe that was the same person that typed in uh, Clint Eastwood donkey audio. <laughs> that that also took people to our page. Why would you do Clint no- Eastwood donkey audio? I, I really really don't know. So I take it it's that scene in, in Unforgiven where Clint Eastwood is falling off of the horse or something. But he's I don't not. Know it's not a donkey. donkey. It's not a do- wife foot massage episodes. <laughs> Yeah, why foot massage episodes? That I'm actually kind of proud of. That I kind one. of think that might have been they were trying to find us. <laughs> yeah, it, it could it could have. Been. Then there's something uh, in this is your favorite uh, Estonian. There's, there's here's but this one should be your favorite. Poo poo, uh, and then emoti. Like they started spelling the word emotion, but they only got to the i. But before that, it's just poo poo. <laughs> <laughs> the word poo poo uh, also brings it anyway. Uh, all right, that was just a, a fun aside. All right. Uh, oh, I also wanted to mention that um, that uh, you, you know we got a lot of good feedback about our our last uh, episode on bean balls, classy with, episode with fire, fiery Cushman, and this was from uh, we got an email from Anthony Derwin, who's a who, who's a collaborator with Fiery, um, who let us know we we had mentioned that there might be gender differences in sort of collective punishment or, or attributions of collective responsibility. And he actually looked, they had data on gender um, in the baseball study. And what he found, although sort of there were only 25 women out of 120 of the avid fans. So these presumably are women who are, who are real, real fans. And um, they were significantly lower in their ratings of, of how morally acceptable it is to, to toss a bean ball. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know what that means. I, we I think were saying that, that we thought women might be, if anything, higher because women play a big role in kind of or, or, or motivating the men to uh, take the necessary risks to uphold their honor. And in some ways that undermines that view. In others... It, yeah, there's... Yeah, it's also sort of just women are less violent. So, so maybe they'd just be less likely to to endorse something like bean balling, but and, but and they don't have a connection to this. They're less yeah. violent, I think, when they're not connected. 
They, right. They're Your less in other really people's a... business about violence. But when it hits right. close to home, I, I, I don't think you would see that result. Right. So the real test would be significant others of the pitchers or the, the batters who got hit. Your, your hypothesis, I guess, one way to say it is that it was relational. Like the, exactly. So it's relational. It's an, it's an open question. Yeah. Ethics of care. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. We should talk about that at some point. We definitely we'll should. And we should have a woman on the podcast. We had, although we lost the episode, uh, an African-American. And then the rest of our uh, – they've all been white men. So and I want to have a woman. We, neither of us have anything against women. Not not at all. And me in not particular. Okay, so for today's topic, uh, Tamler actually had an idea, and it, Tamler is a nasty, vicious, hateful, uh, spiteful human being. So when he first pitched me this idea, I thought, no, you know, I, I don't. I'm full of love, uh, and I don't want to do it. But but his idea was the top three, or at least three things that we hate about our field. And so uh, after. After expressing some trepidation, because after all, I think we both love what we do. We absolutely uh, do. I love, you know, I love what I do, and we couldn't I mean, do anything else. Could else. You leave work to come record a podcast, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, where else? And also, where else could I have a paycheck that comes every month and like health benefits? There's still, no other like job I error. can do. It's like it, I, I know. I feel like that guy in Office Space who's been getting paid through a glitch. It, like, <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. <laughs> Uh, if, if it weren't for this, it's not like if it weren't for this, I'd be like a famous novelist or a movie star <laughs> or a professional basketball player. I, Can you, you know, imagine? This is it. Or a construction Can you worker, imagine what? Carpenter. I, I, God bless like society for having – divided labor up enough to have created jobs like this one that we can actually do because if it weren't for this i agree with you i would be uh, aside aside from a a model a professional model uh, i would be nothing you could be in those uh, upstate new york towns which which you know well. <laughs> like the sears catalog uh, yeah <laughs> or like in one of those like seedy male strip clubs maybe you know. <laughs> no i fear that i'm past my prime for that yeah uh, probably not i don't even command a good price on the streets anymore it's really sad we'll wait till you go to prison <laughs> But we can't stop. We can't start that again because that alienates. <laughs> no, uh, that alienates our listeners. Uh, I'll tell you why. Okay. So, so here's what inspired the the topic. It was something on the lighter reports. And for those of you who don't who aren't familiar with the lighter reports, it's a very famous philosophy blog. Uh, he ranks all the graduate programs. He posted he, every once in a while. He posts when people write something about what philosophy is, because what is philosophy? I mean, it's a good question. So he posted some someone from this guy named Peter Hacker, who's an Oxford philosopher. And here's I'm just going to read an excerpt of uh, of what he wrote. He says, "We must challenge the thought that philosophy aims to contribute to human knowledge of the world." We must challenge the thought that philosophy aims to contribute to human knowledge of the world. I got to read that twice. It is its task, philosophy's task, is to resolve philosophical problems. The characteristic feature of philosophical problems is their non empirical a priori character. No scientific experiment can settle the question of whether the mind is the brain, what the meaning of a word is whether human beings are responsible for their deeds, in parentheses, have free will, whether trees falling on uninhabited desert islands make any noise, what makes necessary truths necessary? 
All these and many hundreds more are conceptual questions. They are not questions about concepts. Philosophy is not a science of concepts. But they are questions that are to be answered, resolved, or dissolved by careful scrutiny of the con- uh, concepts in- involved. So, of course, I read that and I think, holy fuck, Jesus Christ. Imagine if that's what <laughs> philosophy really was. What a just... <laughs> What an unbelievably dismal field it would be! Like what? I yeah, I I don't know. I, there's some clarity to 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 his answer there. Like uh, there's, I feel like uh, maybe so. Maybe he, he's just given up. But may, but maybe his pessimism is like I don't know. I, it's not pessimism. This is a philosopher. He thinks this is really important. <laughs> Only philosophy. I mean. I I don't want to go through this passage because I don't think it's worth going through that much. (laughs) But like the idea that, you know, science can't answer the question of whether trees falling under uh, falling on an uninhabited desert island make any noise. That's not something science can answer. That's only something philosophy can answer. Really? Philosophy can answer that question. What's uh, how much progress have we made with that question? Other than just it being a parody of what the fuck philosophers spend their time doing. And then only philosophy uh, can solve the question of whether people are responsible for their deeds, in parentheses, have free will. It's, 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 so, so anyway, I, this is not one of the things that I hate about philosophy, although it's characteristic of some of the things I'll, 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 I'll be mentioning later. So anyway, we're going to do the top three things we hate about our own field. And Dave's going to so muster motivated. up. This is where the emotion. This is where the emotion came from. From reading that passage, kind of. This was like, you know what? We should talk about some of the things we hate. Yeah. Uh, it'll be cathartic. See, that's the difference yeah. between you and me. I, 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 uh, I am not contrary to your slander, filled with hate, but I do get worked up about things, and I, I feel like a little them. bit like if we took your heart out and squeezed it, like there'd be more hate juice coming out than in mine. I, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I'm like Jesus when it comes to like how I feel about every everything. It's just that I never let anything build up inside of me for more than like thirty seconds because that's the Israeli yeah. in me. That's what we yeah, do. Yeah. We just start that's yelling and screaming how you, how you and we're pissed off, but then we're over it. You know, and like for you, it just all kind of that's hardens great. up into this little kind of Seventh-day Adventist ball in your... It, you know what? Well, you know what comes out of that, Tamler? Pearls. That's the hate in my... The hate that fills my belly comes out in the beautiful form of a pearl. I don't want to uh, try to visualize that, actually. So gonna... <laughs> okay, why don't you start? This, so, right. it, are these ranked at all? Yeah, uh, mine, mine, are, really mine ranked. are ranked. Just... It's going to go from least controversial, uh, least likely to make me lose any friends and gain enemies. So, my number three, this is the easiest target, and that's uh, philosophical writing. I don't think anybody disagrees with me about this, and I don't think anybody in their right mind disagrees with me about this because if you're just a sane normal person you know that the state of philosophical writing is it's a catastrophe what what exactly is is wrong with it so you know this is good because as an outsider i i read articles in philosophy and and i just i just think that okay well i just don't Sometimes I just don't know enough of the like inside language. That's part of the problem is they depend on people like you thinking that rather than yeah. why the fuck can't this person just state something clearly and maybe with a little kind of flair and energy and style. You know, they depend on because they're writing for 
in general, I mean, this is part of the problem. We'll diagnose this, and I have an example that I want to read to you. But part of the problem is they're writing for like nine or ten other people who are going to read this article in this journal uh, because it's a response to their piece or something like that. And then just part of the problem, I don't know. In fact, I want to ask you, but let me give you an example. And this was the easiest thing in the world to come up with an example. I just looked through my bookshelf. I just didn't, I didn't want anything from like somebody I knew. Right. So I just picked up this, uh, eth- this ethics article from 1992 that I had for some reason. And I literally just flipped to a page. Here's a paragraph that I found. What about deontological views, though? that rest the inherent objectionability of self-corruption on something other than its alleged non-universalizability. On the ground, say, that to corrupt oneself, even for a good end, is to treat oneself as a mere means, and that to do this is both inherently and indefeasibly wrong. So that's one <laughs> sentence. It's, one, it's a question. It's a question, right? And then this is the next. There are, of course, a great many ways in which this sort of view could be developed. Far too many for us to be able to pursue any more than a few here. I love that, of course. Like, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> I have no idea what, the, what this guy is talking right. about. There, but, but, but he has to say there are, of course, a great many ways in which this sort of view could be developed. Why do you even have to say that? Like, if it's of course, then why, why, why do we need to get three lines telling us that? Notice, though, that neither of the two most natural ways of developing this sort of view appears, upon reflection, to be very promising. What's the point of that sentence? One of these is the strategy just mentioned, to claim, first, that self-corruption is invariably a way of treating oneself as a mere means, and then to claim that to treat oneself is always wrong. Well, I mean, he just said that. Right, I guess, in that first question that I... Uh, I feel like I treat myself as a mere means like every night. Well, yes, I'm sure, I'm sure you do. That's what Kant thought. You know, that's what was Kant's objection against masturbation. <laughs> I know. But I don't, which I've never understood because it's not as a mere means. Like, if, if yourself is a willing itself. participant. It's an end. It's, a, it's an end it in an itself. End. It's a very important end in itself. Uh, this ta- let me just read this last one. This tech fails, it seems to me, because of the seemingly insuperable difficulties its proponents must face of making sense of the notion of treating oneself as a mere means, and because it is not clear why sh- we should suppose it would always be wrong to treat oneself if we assume, for the sake of argument, that we can make sense of the notion of someone's doing such a thing. Okay, so that was just a paragraph, literally, that I took at random. I don't know this person. Some retired person from Ohio State, I think. I don't know. That's, that's a terribly written paragraph. But, he, but here's the kicker. That, what do you think this article is about? Guess what the topic of this article is. Uh, self-corruption. No. Nuclear uh, disarmament. <laughs> I, swear, I swear to God. Well, it's such a now in retrospect, it's such a clear tie. <laughs> yeah, uh, right now. Now that you think about it, uh, <laughs> and so this is the thing. Like you, you, you take it. I don't know what it is because you know what. Of course, there are good writers in philosophy, like Susan Wolf, great writer. She's a fantastic right. writer. Thomas Nagel, really, really good writer. But there's something about the field, and I've noticed it in myself, because so, I didn't come into it as a philosophy major and as, you know, like, I, I, I feel like every day I wake major? up and, I, and, and I'm just a slightly worse writer than I was the what, previous day. What was, your, what was your major? I was an English major. Oh, okay. 
And yeah, I mean, I always assume that there's this part, there's this like a desire to be so precise in language, but then it like goes overboard and becomes ironically unprecise, imprecise, where it's like, like the, the, the use of invariably, for instance, like where it probably was intended to mean like, no, there really is no, ver- like, it actually does not mean that there. Like, really? That's just like some, it's like a rhetorical tool that's just, yeah. It's it's I, the illusion of precision. It's the illusion and, of being really meticulous. And it's also like everything has to be relentlessly qualified because you don't right. want to leave yourself open to – that's the other thing. It's like a kind of a cautiousness, a right, hyper right. – Like I said, there of course, there were many ways in which you could arrive at this objection. I'm just mentioning one, but of course, like there are many ways. I haven't thought of any, but if you think of them, I said right. – So right. you like, can't tell me that that's – that I never thought that – yeah, no. And it, just, and it just means that everything is three times as long and confusing as it needs to be. And it's – and here's the worst part of it. My playwriting teacher – told me this a long time ago that the worst sin in writing is willful obscurity that's the worst thing you can say about a writer that you're being willfully obscure that you're you're obscuring the ideas because you don't have enough confidence uh, that, that you can explain them clearly or that they're right and so you make it so weird and complicated and convoluted that people will just think i'm not smart enough to figure this out Right. You know, I've actually noticed this in um, t- in my time in Toronto. I've been I've been involved in in doing some consulting work with with a, a behavioral economics group that does consulting, and um, business speak is like that. And it, and what I realized after a while is like that that the use of the, the attempted use of big words um, to communicate just very simple concepts. I, I think that it's because they want to sound like in consulting, they want to sound like they have the secret sauce yeah. and that you, you, it's not available to you unless, uh, unless we actually explain it to you. But so I'll read some of these sentences and I'll be like, you know, you could have just easily, easily said this in like five simple words, you know, but then it's like, what's the point of us then? If we, it, exactly, that's exactly. The, yeah. The, I, you know, I think that, that, uh, other, other humanities actually suffer a lot more from this, like, you know, literary theory. I, I agree. Like that where, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God only knows what goes on in comparative literature, scholarly <laughs> right. writing and stuff like that. That stuff is, you know, the, the obscurantism of those things is, is off the charts and, and makes, you know, the guy I just read sound like Hemingway probably, but, uh, <laughs> so there's a related actual uh, concern that I have when I read some philosophy articles where they start using like this formally representing their arguments with like notation oh yeah yeah where it's like actually completely unnecessary like let's say a a a person p uh (laughs) performs an action phi uh that results in time one e at time no 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 that's uh (laughs) And, and also, and this is a great example of how I suffered from this, right? The, one of the best comments, quick comments that I got on my book was, stop using so many abbreviations. Robust moral responsibility became RMR and transfer of non-responsibility, you know, TNR. And like, you know, these were stuff that had been done. But then I was coming up with my own, like, free will eliminativism would be FWE and like all these things. And it was just... Uh, it, it, you know, it was out of control, and the you, reviewer, uh, who I now know was Ron Mallon, was like, "Hey, cut, da- cut, cut down, <laughs> or cut out all those abbreviations." And I, you know, and I looked back at the drafts, like, "God, he's right. What's wrong with yeah. me that I do that? I would never have done that, you know, four years ago, five years ago, right. but I did then right. because I because it's an illness, it's a fucking disease, and it's really <laughs> hard to resist." 
I mean, in some ways, it's just signaling that you're in the club, right? And but but I agree, I 100 percent agree with you that it's it's a horrible, horrible. If you can't communicate your ideas, and if you can't say it in language that would be understandable to an outsider, and I'm not talking about statistics and like whatever you know methodological lingo that you use. I'm talking about just the gist of the idea. If you can't say that in plain English using like simple words, like I think when people have two conflicting thoughts, they feel discomfort, you know, and uh, like that's how you should say it. Don't say like you know, since time immemorial, cognitive dissonance has been integral, you know, it's like, just say what you mean. And, but okay. So, so, I mean, that's, so, so part of the problem is the obscurantism, the, you know, the putting of the, 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 the large words and the abbreviations and the notations when you don't need them. And then the other problem is lack of just energy or style or fun. Like there's just not, right. it's very, it's very uh, rare and so welcome when you find a philosophy essay that's just fun to read, right? Just something right. that's actually like entertaining to read in the way that a really good essay uh, is entertaining or that a good novel is entertaining or it's just. So are, are those kinds of essays taken seriously in the field or is that part of the problem? I, because I, you know, I, I would try to inject that just because of my background. I was repeatedly warned about that um, as a graduate student. You know, don't try to, you know, if you if you if you try to write this way, nobody's going to take you seriously. They'll think it's popular. Right. They'll think you're writing trade books and all that. Right. And and right. I, and actually, the one thing I'm really happy about and grateful about is that hasn't been the case. It's been the opposite. I think I've. I think the like the superficiality of my ideas has somehow has sometimes you know been masked by the fact that people like the way I write. <laughs> As I've heard people use the criticism, "You write too well." Primary example was actually for a graduate student in our in our department who became a science writer because she writes very well. But like the criticism was, "No, you write too well." And the the idea there was that like she must be pulling the wool over our eyes with her like go, with her like really good use of language, you know. All right, what's okay, your number so, three? So mine aren't ranked, um, really. I, I didn't. But if I'm going to go from from sort of least severe. Actually, no, I'm, I'm just going to do this one because I think it's the most interesting one that, that comes to mind right now. So, so w- one of the things that bugs me a lot, a lot, and believe me, I am like really as much to blame as anybody else, is the field. So here I'm talking about social psychology, right? What bugs me the most, and it's really taken, taken extra, extra ground in the last, say, 10 years, is a reliance on viewing the mind as for lack of a better term, like as, as two things. So dual process theories um, or dichotomies between emotion and reason or, you know, all of the work in judgment and decision-making on syst- what they call in, in the lingo system one and system two. System two is supposed to be like the rational deliberative and system one is the intuitive, quick, fast, heuristic form of thinking. Um, but again, it gets it older than that in the dichotomy between emotion and reason. And I think that this is now finally we're at the stage where this is just doing nothing but harm to our understanding of the mind. So can and you so, give an example? Yeah. So in, in, let's talk about in, in moral judgment. The idea is – and so let's take jo- Josh Green's views on, on what's going on when people make, make moral judgments. Uh, so in these classic trolley examples – uh, where you're asked whether or not you would sacrifice an innocent person in order to save a greater number of people. The, the general argument is that when people are thinking more deliberately, they're more likely to favor utilitarianism. But when they go with their gut, then they're more likely to favor the deontological approach. 
And this is not a critique of Josh Green's view. And in fact, it's not even a critique of the findings. It's a critique of the way that we talk about them. And so, so, but this is a, a much, much bigger than just moral judgment. But why, so uh, why do you think that's getting in the way of... Right. So, uh, so let me just give you another prominent example. So, uh, and we'll put a link to this because it's actually a very good book. Daniel Kahneman, the, the, the recent winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics... Um, has a book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Yeah. So the idea here is that we, we do a, we'll do a good job of understanding the mind when we realize that sometimes we have the effort and the motivation and the capacity to think deeply about some problems, but that often we don't. So broad strokes, I think that's the right, the right kind of approach. So that there are two but, kind of processes. There's the instinctive one where we just use these heuristics to... To, right, to, to arrive at a quick sort of lazy answer or, uh, uh, you know, when, whenever we're strapped, strapped for time or, or we're, ne- we're never not motivated to think deeply about something. So there are a ton of findings that can, be, that can be understood in this way. And I'll just give you an example from my own work. We have a paper with – this is with Eric Ullman and Paul Bloom where um, we showed that when, people, when we give people instructions to think rationally and deeply about, uh, about these – questions about who's morally responsible they they actually respond differently than when we ask them to be to go with their gut to be intuitive Mm -hmm. um so here's why i think this is problematic well it captures it sort of captures this this uh, a lot of data to describe things as like well system one and system two the mind is it's there are many more systems than this and so the way that i see it is if you look at the descriptions that people say, that people give when they say, what's the difference between system one and system two or between the rational versus the heuristic? The, the part where you think like deeply, the deliberation and thought, that's clear. I think that that's, there are, it's very obvious that sometimes we think hard about things and we use sort of deliberate deliberate sort of rational thinking and propositional logic and all that. And that's weighing fine. the options. If this leads weighing to the, the options, option, yeah. right. Yeah, right. And so that's not to say you get it right, but it's at least say you made an effort. It's the other part that I think is masking a whole lot of stuff that's going on. So when you look at the descriptions of what this, this quick heuristic system is, people use the words fast, automatic, unconscious, intuitive, dirty. emotional. Sometimes like fast and gut. dirty. Like, uh, fast, yeah, fast and dirty. Yeah. And I think that that's actually really, really mixing up a whole bunch of interesting psychological processes. Let me just give you an example people often refer to it as the intuitive system. But if we're really interested in understanding the mind, we have to unpack some of these things. So there are clearly differences in kinds of intuitions that we have. So um, a chess player who sort of intuitively knows where to move next, they know that because of years and years of accumulated experience and expertise. And so there's that's one reason that they kind of quickly know the answer to what the next move should be. And they don't, they don't see the bad moves. It's like, they, right, just like right. we don't see like illegal moves. You know, if you, if you know the rules of chess and you've been playing right. for a while, right. they don't right. see bad moves. They only right. just see like the good moves uh, that, and that's acquired from uh, years and years and years of study and experience. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so we can say it was sort of like the, the rational deliberation sort of moved th- like through expertise and experience, like moved into this intuitive system. But then, like, then you have people who talk about emotions as the same thing. But many emotions are actually sort of probably evolved, evolved quick reactions to, to sort of 
old evolutionary problems. Like you see a snake and you feel fear. Right. Now, why are we lumping that in the same category as the chess player? Because they're both fast? It makes no sense at all. Like these are very, very different psychological processes. You mean somehow, like in terms of one is primitive and the other is yeah, acquired? Yeah, one is like innate and probably evolved and it's, it responds with a very sort of different – like the, the, the process is very different. Like it probably goes through – it doesn't ever have to go through a rational system first. Right. Um, and it's an emotion. It's associated with a particular feeling and it's associated with particular physiological reaction. So is just because they're both fast, right? Like they're in the same. It, it makes no sense. And I, I remember, like the the height of my frustration was in graduate school when uh, there was a book published called "Dual Process Theories in Social Psychology," and then I realized, like, we're classifying theories by how many factors they have. <laughs> that right. makes no sense at all. Like, and so, so I actually think that we're really shooting, shooting ourselves in the foot by, you know, and, and this is like moved into the popular media. You have blink by Malcolm Gladwell. You have Danny Kahneman's thinking fast, thinking slow. You have all one out of every four David Brooks columns. Yeah, exactly. When it's like, we're missing out on the real psychology of it. Like it's a surface feature of a judgment that it's either made fast or slow. And we also, plus, Wait, what do you uh, think like that is? So, like, because dual process just became this, you know, buzzword. It, 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 it like anchored into a lot of the both popular presentations of the material, but also just the actual work, right? I mean, the yeah. actual scholarship, the literature. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that it captures something. It captures something important about our psychology, which is that that um, that system too, that rational deliberative aspect can like kick in to solve very many problems and we don't realize that we are often not thinking but it's it's just masking so much like let me give you another another example of a system one aka like the the fast system um when when you see a visual illusion right and you you realize you you it looks it looks as if those two tables are very very different in size this is like I'm giving the example of the famous Roger Shepard table illusion. Um, it looks like these two tables that are angled differently are completely different in size and shape. But in fact, when you grab them and you put them overlapping on each other, it's, it appears it, it's, it becomes obvious that they're exactly the same size and shape. So, so people actually use that sort of that, the trick part as like the intuitive system. And then like the knowledge that they're actually the same shape as the rational deliberate system. Uh, but, are we really lumping together like an evolved emotion expertise and a visual illusion all in the same thing because they're so fast? I, I, so I, I think we're making a gross error and we're ignoring a whole lot of interesting stuff that's going on um, just because, because we like the number fucking two. I, I'll never forget my friend Piotr Winkleman, who is a, he's a, a psychologist and has a very funny Polish accent in all seriousness. One time we were talking about this problem and he's just, he was sort of tapping his cheeks and he goes, I mean, what if there are five processes? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and if there are five, like, we're fucked. <laughs> like, we've been focused on two this whole time. All right, let's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's uh, take a break. And then when we come back, we'll burn uh, some more bridges. Um, <laughs> our top two things we hate about our own field. And then we're going to get personal. I'm going to say what I hate most about social psychology. And man, was that hard to narrow down to just one thing. <laughs> Asshole. When I'll be asking you is more than that. When I'll be asking you is more than that. This one or that one. 
back to Very Bad Wizards. We are listing the top three things we hate about our own fields, and then we'll say the thing we hate the most about each other's field. And we are on number two right now, and I guess I'm up, right? Yeah, you're up. Yeah. All right, so this is a general one. I, I'm going from least controversial, which is writing, which I think everybody agrees with me about. Now, I think now we have one where the number of people who agree with me that this is something to hate about philosophy rather than some rather than something to celebrate, is, well, it's, it's, it's probably in the minority. So there's a, general, there's a general feature of this, which is kind of the question, okay, yeah, but is that really X, where X is like whatever the concept is that you're trying to deal with? And we had this argument. Uh, before right. right it was like uh, i think we were talking about you download music illegally and you feel absolutely no guilt about it and no no motivation not to do it but you think it's morally wrong or let's say you do i don't right. know if you do right. i don't even know if you think in the moral terms well, so yeah all. i was pointing i was pointing to that to the the right. my, my puzzlement at the what is the concept wrong right because i feel like the concept wrong entails motivation and i seem to not have the motivation even right, right. and so that's the question right do you right. really believe that it's morally wrong if you have no right. motivation right and, and we talked about this in the in the context of psychopaths as well right like so yeah so, or do yeah. they really think that things are morally wrong if they don't have any kind of motivation or and right. my contention was and is that that is a, <laughs> a stupid, su- question. stupid question exactly <laughs> it's a stupid question it's a pseudo question there's no like definitive answer that you can give again this is i would be going against peter hacker who thinks that philosophy is the only field that can settle that <laughs> no no field can settle that question because there's no right answer to that question there's no fact of the matter it is like asking whether is bowling a sport so but, hey, but, but, maybe but we should put a link to the to the to the timestamp of the episode where we actually had an all out on this yeah we did <laughs> but i want to talk about one which i mean i alluded to this then too which is knowledge okay so is right. this really knowledge do you really know something and here's how you know, and this started with Plato, and it's just been going on ever since, pretty much unabated, uh, this question about when do we really know something? And so the idea that Plato put forward was, well, if we have a belief and it's justified, we've justified it, uh, and it's true, then that's knowledge. So then you have this uh, Gettier case, this famous counterexample. I think a lot that's wrong with philosophy is, you know, represented by the enormous amount of literature on the Gettier problem, which is a case where somebody has a belief that's justified, it's well justified and it's true, but it's only accidentally true. Uh, yeah, so so give the example. I, cause I actually think sociologically this is really interesting because uh, uh, Gettier was, was uh, he, uh, apparently he was up for tenure, but he didn't really have any publications and so they're like come on dude we we want to tenure you but like come on you gotta do something so it's just like it was like one and a half pages maybe yeah yeah i don't know it's like it's like one and a half page paper that like apparently changed the way people think about epistemology 
Well, so that's the thing. It changed, but it didn't change the way I think about epistemology no. or anything that's interesting about epistemology. It just, it just added to your hate. It just it, it, it well, and again, a lot of these time a lot of times it's not the original paper that's at fault. It's the masses and masses and masses of responses and response to those responses and the variations on the various counterexamples and all of that. Right. So the, the cases where you see me driving a Toyota and you know that I've had a Toyota in the past. You remember that I've had a Toyota. And then and, and, and so you think, oh, that's Tamler's Toyota. I know, and then the question is, do you know that? But now it turns out that uh, actually that Toyota that you remember me having was stolen a month and a half ago. And I bought a new Toyota or somebody gave me – somebody felt bad for me and gave me this new Toyota – and so it turns out that your belief that I, it's my Toyota was true, and it was justified because you remembered back to when I had a Toyota. And, but 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 it's not knowledge because it, it's just an accident that it happened to be true. It's an accident that I happened to get a new Toyota. It's, I don't know why you, I don't know why you hate on this so much. I actually think this is a really interesting question. It's not an interesting and, and, question. And I'll give you, What's and interesting I'll give you an about example. it? I'll give you an example. Okay, so when I was like in in fifth grade, I had this argument with my friend. My friend, we are kind of little nerds, you know. We had we we would read like the same sort of like you know science books for kids. And my friend in fifth grade, this is in 1985, something like that, 1986, um, he says, you know, there's water on Mars. And I said, no, there's not. There's not water on Mars. Now, uh, we had a full on argument about whether or not there was water on Mars. So years later, we accumulate, we finally find good evidence that there's water on Mars. And my friend goes, he emails me or he finds me on Facebook. He's like, see? I told you I knew there was water on Mars. And I go, you didn't know there was water on Mars. <laughs> you thought there was water on Mars. It turns out there was water on Mars, but you did not acquire that in the right way. So you cannot say that you knew it. So don't fucking take credit for Now, that. wait a minute, so, though. Here's the thing, right? The problem with that example is that he didn't acquire it in the right way, and he could have acquired it in a better way. The Gettier case, what's interesting, so, so his belief wasn't justified, right? That's the right. key. I agree that it's an interesting question when a belief right, 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 is justified. Right. That is an right. interesting question, but that is not the question that, uh, uh, okay. that, that is raised by the Gettier problem. The Gettier <laughs> problem is, is, is a question about, okay, a belief is justified, and it's formed by a reliable process that normally leads to true beliefs in other cases. But in this case that I dreamed up because I wanted to get tenure and in something that almost never happens uh, in real life, if it ever happens at all. Uh, right. so, now we ha so now we failed in our quest to find necessary and sufficient conditions for what knowledge is, for when something is knowledge. And that's the problem, right? It's like if we so can't find a specified number of necessary, like this has to be true in order for it to be knowledge, and sufficient, if all these things are true, then this is definitely knowledge. If we can't identify those conditions, we think that we have... I mean, we think we're skeptics, that there's no such thing as knowledge. This is the most absurd thing. There was a paper 
published in the Journal of Philosophy. I, I swear to God, a journal of philosophy, the most famous philosophy journal called The Long Road to Skepticism, in which the, the conclusion of the paper is there's no knowledge. We have no knowledge, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 the point of the paper, right? So, so, so you That's think, oh my like, god, I we have not, no knowledge. This is like I do not think what I do not think that word means what you think it means. I had like I was excited to read this because I love those Greeks, you know, like the Greek <laughs> Pyrrho, who was the original skeptic. He also came to the conclusion that we had no knowledge. But here's the difference: when he thought, when he said we have no knowledge, he just thought we have absolutely no reason to think that any of our beliefs are true. And so he had to be, like, led around by his students around ditches or else he would just walk into ditches. And, and like, that's a famous He really, a famous he really story. acted on his beliefs. He acted on his beliefs because it actually mattered. He really thought. And, you know, like, there's a – so this I, is I, just an argument about, like, the word knowledge. This, is, like an all, this is an argument about the word knowledge. Exactly. It's like – it's yeah. not skepticism about – do we have justified beliefs that are true and formed by a reliable process? It's skepticism right. about whether you can call that in every single case, you know, including any kind of thought experiment, you know, nitpicky, fanciful, yeah, yeah, out, like way out there, like impossible yeah, thought experiment that someone dreamed up. <laughs> then, then, no, then I'm a skeptic. That's not skepticism. I mean, come on. Yeah, really? That's right. not skepticism. You know, so maybe people are familiar with the sort of like the, uh, a bachelor is an unmarried male. <laughs> I remember – I remember reading all of the cases in which an unmarried male would not be uh, considered a bachelor. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then it's and like, so it's are you true. skeptical int- about the existence right. of bachelors? Right, 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 right. So, so my case of my friend, Jimmy Bazan, who thought there was water on Mars, didn't meet the Gettier conditions, or, but it was just an interesting set of facts. Um, that it, it wasn't about whether It was about not, where someone right, can right. believe something that turns out to be true. It's right, like if right, some, I mean, right. that case is like if somebody is like at the playing blackjack and they hit on a 19 and they get a two and they're like, right. see, I told you I had a feeling, man. I just had a feeling, <laughs> you know, and it's like, but that's just because that's stupid. Right. And you just yeah. lucked out in having the right. belief be right. But it's not a justified belief. Believe me, I, I'm fascinated by I, what I, I consider to be real problems in epistemology, which is what makes a belief, what gives us good grounds to believe something as true true but right. what you call knowledge is not an interesting right. question i okay. don't get it can i can i then use that to segue into my second pet peeve absolutely or my second hate i guess yeah one answer to that question that a psychologist in this day and age might actually really think of as a real answer is well we'll know when we know enough about the brain so that's my my <laughs> second real real hate is that huge i mean it's almost like it's it's almost stupid to not believe it given how many people seem to believe it that the answers to psychological questions will come from a, an understanding of how the brain works right so there's an obvious way in which like brains cause minds right i i think that's completely uncontroversial like obviously like our psychology is caused by our brains um, but there is this weird way in which people, people, really smart people somehow think that, uh, some of the deepest answers about the mind, uh, we've just been waiting for the right technology to see it in the brain. And that actually just makes absolutely no sense to me. So, so, uh, it's like a faith. It's a faith that, you know, some <laughs> sort of like neuroscience, fMRI study will establish 
the truth for these kinds of questions when it's not even clear how that would work. It's not even clear <laughs> not what clear. the results could possibly be that would answer the question. Exactly. Like I'm just not sure that there is – so, okay. So let me say what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that the study of the brain is, is not interesting. Like to know about the brain and how the brain causes causes the mind is really interesting, and and I feel like neuroscientists are very open about this. Like, like I'm interested in knowing uh, how the brain uh, encodes memories. So you can actually answer. It's really interesting. Oh, you give people a list. Uh, you know, you give people a list, and then you bring them in a week later, and you and you remember how. Like, here's a great example. Like, um, how is emotion? Uh, so we know that emotions often cause an increase in memory. So when you have a very emotional experience, uh, you tend to remember it more. Um, so, uh, so people who are interested in neuroscience show that, that actually like uh, the, the amygdala seems to be really involved in, 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 in this process. But here's the thing that doesn't tell us anything new about psychology. It tells us something new about the brain. So a reliable finding in psychology was that uh, emotions would make you remember things more. That, that is the starting point to ask the question, how does the brain do it? Knowing how the brain does it added nothing to our knowledge of, how, of, of the psychology of it. We already knew. And in fact right. – That's the key yeah. is we already knew the brain was responsible for it. <laughs> right. So it we doesn't – we're not discovering some new deep thing about our psychologies when we discover how the brain does it. Yeah, not at all. And in fact, so many times like uh, these uh, imaging studies, they rely on being really confident that we know about our psychology – Already. So in any study where you have to manipulate an emotion and then you look at the brain, you're already relying on the fact that, that you trust that your manipulation is going to make people have an emotion. So if I, if I want to study fear in the brain, I need to develop a method of, of inducing fear in my subjects. And in order to, in order to do that, I, I have to have just established that independently. I have to have like brought people into the lab and shown them pictures of snakes and shown that they, you know, somehow this affected them. And only then can I reliably conclude when I do that in the, in an fMRI machine and I say, oh, look, the amygdala was activated. You're concluding that the amygdala is responsible for fear rests on your confidence Right. That you know how to manipulate fear in the lab. Right. 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 So it's not saying like, oh, and, you know, now we know about fear, whereas before we didn't. Like, it's all it's saying is this is, okay, this is how the brain instantiates, you know, the the fear. So, and I can't even say like the billions of dollars that we're investing into the brain with the hope that it will give us answers to psychology. And what, now, I, don't get, that, yeah. what I don't get is – so, I mean, the, the, the biggest example that I'm familiar with is the free will example. The brain yeah, will yeah. – we need to do a few more fMRI experiments, but it's pretty clear right now that uh, from our, neuro, you know, our, our neuroscientific data that there's no free will. Yeah, and, and that we're not morally responsible. I, I know. I just and we're like, well, so, 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 why, why do you say that? What, what are the results that 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 tell you that? And then when you get into the details, either they boil down to, well, the brain causes our actions, right. and the brain, you know, is <laughs> right. like a, a natural thing. It's like the I'll part t- of the body. And it's like, well, yeah, but but we all knew that already. 
right? Yeah, I know. So I, I know. So one time I uh, I was complimenting a friend on this finding that he that uh, he was part of uh, implicit attitudes toward toward members of an, of another race. In this case, white kids looking at black people black people's pictures um that the brain the amygdala was involved in in this whole in this process so that that is the degree of amygdala activation predicted the degree of of prejudice that people had mm-hmm. and so i told him oh that's a great finding and he, he looked at me and he said did you really think the brain wouldn't be involved because <laughs> right. that would be a finding <laughs> like <laughs> And like, it's true. And this is not to knock the people who are doing sort of good uh, cognitive neuroscience or social cognitive neuroscience, because I think that they kind of understand this. Right. Um, and there may be, there may be, uh, but there are plenty of the people who don't understand it. They, I think most people, most people probably don't. And I, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, you can use brain data as a, as an additional measure. So suppose we have a really reliable measure of emotion that you can use in in you know with fMRI, and so you could use that as a measure, sort of as a dependent variable. So whereas before we might use self-report or physiological arousal or something right. like that, now we can look in the brain, and then that can tell you something. But it's not it's not anything adding anything else, right? It's not, you know it's like it's somehow the default assumption is that the brain wouldn't be involved, and therefore it's surprising when it is. That concludes part one of our Burning Bridges episode. Check out part two where we list our number one complaint about our respective fields and our complaints about each other's fields. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard.